Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. par for the course. Amen. But we are happy and excited about something uh, getting done back there. Amen. John chapter 17, and I'm going to read the first, the first eight verses here tonight. First eight verses. The Bible says, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. For a little while tonight I want to talk about unfolding eternal life. Unfolding eternal life. Amen tonight. Jesus, I need your help, Lord, this evening. You're able to help us. God, as we once again turn our hearts and our minds to the word of the Lord. That word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray, O oh Lord, that it would guide us even now, in this day, in this generation and time. God, its words are still relevant. God, its words are still applicable, Lord, to our lives. I pray, O oh Lord, help us to receive them as such. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. 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 You may be seated. Seated. Also, something to be on the lookout for before I get started. And I don't know the exact time frame of this. Brother Mason may know better than ourselves, but I know usually it was somewhere in the month of April that a link opened up for camp meeting. So I don't know what the timetable right after spring conference. So that's, that'll be in the month of April. So you might want to be looking for that. Camp meeting be coming up in the month of July. And so if you want to go, uh, that link will open as normal. Jump on it. If you like certain lodging, shepherd's hall, or certain place, it's always best to get it done early. Amen. This prayer, and that's what it is tonight, John chapter number 17, is in essence a prayer. This prayer has often been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ because Christ is praying and uh, a good portion of it is him interceding on our behalf or at least the behalf of his disciples. This prayer of John 17 is probably more appropriately or should more appropriately be called the Lord's Prayer than the prayer that we find in the Gospels that he teaches his disciples how to pray. This is really what should be termed the Lord's Prayer. And most of the words spoken here, again, are for his disciples, or if you want to include us in, the, in there, those who are believers, those that are following the Lord. And then also in there, he kind of starts with what some may say is a personal request, even in your Bible, if it divides it in sections that might say that Jesus prays for himself in these first verses but then it ends with him praying for those that will believe upon the Lord because of the disciples message and the word so it's kind of a few different sections a, a prayer for himself we'll look at that in a little bit it's not really self-serving uh, prayer for those that believe and prayer for those that do not believe that perhaps will believe whenever they have heard the message of the word of the Lord. One thing that we must keep in mind as we read chapter number 17 and not get lost in this is that Jesus is praying as a man. 
He is praying as a human man to the Father or to God, to that spirit, the human nature. Again, Jesus Christ has a dual nature. It's a human nature, and there is the divine nature. Well, the human nature of Jesus Christ is praying. And it's crying out to the divine, to God, and thinking, man, what deal is this that to wit that was God in Christ? That seems a little odd. Well, you still pray too, but you have the Spirit of God. Right? right. right? Because God isn't just contained just to you. Right. He's here. The heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Right? Wherever you go, he's there. And so there's nothing wrong with Jesus as a man praying Though to wit, God was in him, God was still everywhere. Amen. And so he was praying as a man to God. Amen. And again, it's no different if you think of then Jesus at other times, him hungering, him thirsting, right? He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Yet at the same time, he could divide bread up and feed thousands. Right? Amen. And so this act of prayer that Jesus does, of course, good for all these other things, but also it sets a very good example. Again, once again, for his disciples, it sets a good example for us as well. And so Jesus, as we've seen through the Gospel of John and this long study, that Jesus has always been aware of what is noted in Scripture as his hour or the hour. Throughout the Gospels, we see this over and over again. There were certain times that people were going to take him or apprehend him or throw him off the edge of a cliff. But the Bible so beautifully notes, but his hour was not yet. His hour was not yet. The time for his death had, had not yet occurred. It was not time for that. But now, here in John 17, we've seen a few splatterings of this in other places. Now, without any reservation, Jesus knows that his hour or the hour has Come, this is his hour. Amen. And some call this part of the prayer, again, like the first five verses or so, they call this part of the prayer Jesus' prayer for himself. Because of the request found in verse number one, Jesus says, glorify thy son. But we can't stop there. He says, glorify thy son. Why? What's the reason? Why, why does he desire to be glorified? That thy son also may glorify thee. So he, he desires to be glorified, which we'll look at in a little bit, which really means he desires to be crucified. That what he came to the earth for happens. So he desires to be glorified so that God will be glorified. So the only reason that Jesus is asked to be glorified is that he wants to turn this around and give the glory to God. Now, I wouldn't necessarily call that so much so a prayer for yourself. He's praying in such a way that whatever happens to me, I wanted to give glory to you. What a great prayer. Amen, what a great prayer. So really then, in his request here, is hopes that God will be glorified. And so whenever Jesus speaks, and this is not just here in John or right here in chapter 17, but you find this oftentimes in the Gospels, that whenever it speaks of Jesus being glorified, it is alluding to, it is referring to the work of the cross. It is referring to the crucifixion, kind of all these things together, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. It's the full package because one does lean very heavily upon the other and is dependent upon the other. In John 7, where you talk about the last day of the feast, and Jesus said, you know, come and thirst. If you're thirsty, come unto me. And he told him that I'll give you some water. And the Bible speaks about how this he spoke concerning the Spirit, but the Spirit was not yet given, or the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified is the word again it's referring to Calvary hadn't taken place yet there hadn't been the death burial and the resurrection none of that taken place yet so the spirit had not been given because he had not yet been glorified or crucified now that's hard us as humans to wrap our minds around crucifix is glory right it's hard for us. I'm sure it was hard for most of them in that day too. It was a place of cruelty. It was one of the, the, the most horrific deaths that there were in their time frame. But the Lord knew what he was going to turn that place, that symbol into. It wasn't going to, from that day forward, the, the, 
the horror of crucifix wasn't going to be as it previously had been because of him being an innocent man that went to a cross for the purpose of the salvation of humanity and a people. And so uh, one thing is when we talk about Jesus being glorified, again, some may only relate that to his ascension. Oh, yeah, glorified. He's going to ascend into the heavens. It's going to be great. But again, it isn't. It doesn't just pertain to ascension. It doesn't just pertain to resurrection. Anybody would say, resurrection, that's, that's glorification right there. I mean, it's like, woo, resurrected. That doesn't happen every day, right? But in order to have an ascension with a finished work, there must have been a resurrection. And in order for there to have been a resurrection, there had to be a burial. And in order for there to be a burial... There had to be a crucifixion. And so that's why I say then the glorification is really the sum total of all this together. There was glory in all of it because all of it brought about the full resurrection ascension of Christ, amen, into the heavens as our high priest. I believe that we looked at last week, you know, being that intermediary that's taken the blood of himself being the own sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And so, yes, there is glory attached and associated to the very beginning of this whole process, which is the crucifixion. So glory and death don't make sense. Don't make sense to humanity. It does not make sense to us. However, however, in Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition and culture, the death anniversary of an individual is more important than their birthday. The Jews celebrate when someone dies rather than when someone was born. And the reason for this, and and we even got a little scripture premise for this, Ecclesiastes 7 and 1, the Bible states, Solomon said, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day, and he's meaning this is better as well, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. The reason why the Jews celebrated the death day, the death, death day, If you call it birthday, you call it death day. The reason why they celebrate the death day more than the birthday is because whenever an individual was born, according to the Jews, that individual hasn't accomplished anything yet. When that child is born, they really did not do anything of their own means to get them to where they are. At that moment of birth, all they have is potential, either for good or bad. At that moment of birth, all they have is possibilities. However... They celebrate the day that someone dies because in that moment, on the day that they die, and they do this a lot of times year by year, they will celebrate the different ones of their family when they died because now looking back over their life, they can see and reflect upon the true legacy they've left, the accomplishments that they have come to uh, secure throughout their lifetime. And so it's from that perspective really backward that they can have the truest appreciation for the individual and a life well lived, not from where they start, but from where they finished. Someone say amen. And so there's glory in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do, we, we thank the Lord for him coming. If he didn't come, we wouldn't have the body and the blood and all that. We do. But the glorification of the death is this. We can look back over 33 and a half years of a life and we see blind eyes open and we see dead raised and we see water, just in the book of John, we see water turned into wine. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We see the lame walk. We see the loving of enemies and those that persecuted him and chastised him. We see no gall came from his mouth when all these things were done. You can really see the accomplishment and the life well lived that in in infancy was potential, but now it is tangible. It's something that took place, something that happened, something that came to fruition. And so, yes, there is glory in the death, I guess, for each and every one of us according to how we lived our life. For we must first realize, though, and we're around verses 2 and 3 here, that eternal life, how many want eternal life? Yeah, eternal life. And when we talk about eternal life, we'll talk about this a little bit. Eternal life 
just isn't about living forever, okay? I think that's what we associate most times with eternal life, that aspect of living forever. But we must realize that eternal life, or if I can tonight, redemption was not an afterthought to God after the transgression of the Garden of Eden. I think it's important to get in our minds. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God's like, well, what in the world am I going to do? Well, I guess I'll have to just go down there and straighten it out. It was not an afterthought. It was not like, oh, this, we got this horrible thing. Now I've got to put together a plan. Eternal life and redemption was not that. For that matter, eternal life and redemption was not an afterthought even for the word of the Lord. Amen. What I'm saying is this, is that God promised eternal life, redemption before the world ever began. And purposeful reading of your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see and understand with purposeful reading of your Bible, it's going to reveal from Genesis to Revelation that the overarching theme, you know, sometimes they say, what's the theme of this book or what's the theme of that that you read? The overarching theme of the Bible is redemption. The overarching theme is eternal life. The Bible states this in Titus 1 and verses 2 and 3. Paul here is writing, uh, open his letter here to Titus, and this is what Paul says. He says, he's kind of introducing himself as he often does in the letter, I'm Paul. And he says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, mind you, I threw in the mind you, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Paul says, in hope of eternal life, God, I'm going to take away the, the, the cannot lie for a moment, kind of skip over it. God promised before, promised what? Promised eternal life before the world began. Verse three, but hath in due times, everybody say now, but now manifested his word, what word? That promise of eternal life through preaching, I like that. You know why I like that? Because what God promised before the world began, I continue to promise with every time I teach and preach. I'm just echoing what he promised before the world ever began. But in due times now manifested his word, that promise of eternal life, through preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of our God and Savior. So since it was before the world began, one might even begin to wonder, who did God promise eternal life to? This was before the world began. Who did he promise it to? Well, if I could say it like this, and I want to walk you through this, God willed it, God promised it to himself. Not that he needed eternal life, but almost like a go. Have you ever in your life had a thought or a go that you promised to yourself? I mean, just internally, like, I want to get that new boat. I'm promising myself something. I'm willing something. I'm, I'm going to visit Washington, D.C. one of these days. I don't have to speak it. But internally, these promises are etched in your thoughts. They're etched in your will. And so God promised that he would give eternal life before the world ever began. Look what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 9. It says who, if you go the few verses up, you understand who the who is. The who is referring to God. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, this God that saved us, this God that called us, and he does this not by our works, but according to his own purpose, but he gave it to us, look at it, Bishop, he gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now, I thought the man Christ Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger at a prescribed day and time when the star appeared in the sky. But he's telling us that he gave us, amen, this this purpose of his, this calling of his was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world. Every begin, look at verse number 10. But is now made manifest by the appearing 
of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God willed and promised to himself the way, if you will, of eternal life for all of us through Jesus Christ because eternal life comes through Christ. It comes through his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. There had to be blood for the remission that was found in Christ. Amen. And so he would accomplish this sad redemption for us, this saving us, this calling us. God would do that through Christ. But it was given to us in Christ Jesus even before the world began. How? Because your Bibles, John says, in verse number one of chapter number one, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 tells us, and the Word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Someone say amen. The Word was God. The Word, Word, don't want to lose you there. The Word, Word is logos in the Greek language. It means something said, including the thought. So in the beginning was the logos. It's not just something that is said, but it is the thought behind what is said, or it's the thought behind what is revealed. In other words, in the beginning of Genesis 1, whenever God said, let there be light, that statement of let there be light was tied to a thought of let there be light. And so what was accomplished of light appearing was really found in its origin that it was a thought before it was a reality. All the way back before the beginning of time, before the world began, God had made a promise already to himself that I'm going to redeem humanity. Not only that he would, but the way and the plan by which it would happen. Christ Jesus was already in the will and the thought pattern of God before he was ever born in Bethlehem's manger. Mm, someone say amen. amen. The Bible says in Revelations 13, 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, speaking of the beast of the latter time of Revelation 13, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Hold on. What? What about Calvary? What about the slain of the lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world in John and in Luke? That's when it happened. But John, the revelator says in Revelation, he speaks of the lamb that was slain before. If I say before, before the foundation of the world. What is that? That's before creation. That's before the world began. How in the world is that possible? I tell you how. Because in the mind and the will and the thought of God, he already seen Calvary. For that matter, eternity knows no time limits. There's not a past eternity and a present eternity and a future eternity. All things in eternity exist as they are right now and God just uses time in our lives to reveal what he's already done in eternity. There could, I know that's a powerful statement, amen, to consider, but there could be someone already healed of a sickness that they have right now in eternity that God is gonna use time to reveal what he's already done. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. All the way back before the world was even created in our time spectrum, the lamb had already been crucified in eternity and he just used several generations of time to bring of time to bring us to where we were in the New Testament to slay the lamb. And in that moment, the redemption he had before the world began was available to, oh God, available to mankind. What did he, oh my Jesus, what did he say in 2 Timothy? He said he gave us this plan, this purpose in Christ Jesus. He said, but it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior. Yeah. Come on. Come on. This is good Bible doctrine. Right. Yes, sir. A lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That lamb of God that John said whenever Christ came to be baptized of him and he looked at others and said, behold, the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Slain at Calvary. 
John says, this has taken place from the very foundation of the world. Because the will and the thought pattern of God from the beginning, the logos of God was for him, that word to be made flesh and into well flesh and to acquire blood and to redeem mankind because of our sins. In the will of God, Christ was already born. In the will of God, Christ was already dead. In the will of God, he had already resurrected, already ascended, already done the mediation of the high priest in heaven. Jesus was with God, was God in the beginning as the will and the thought of God, the plan of God. So what was accomplished on Calvary had to be tied to a thought Primarily a thought that pre-existed time. And it has existed forever. Same language we see used concerning the church. Someone say the church. Church. Same language we see concerning the church, Ephesians 1 and 4. According, the Bible says, Paul to the church at Ephesus, according as he hath chosen us in him. Anytime you see the phrase, particularly in the epistles when he's writing to the churches, anytime you see the phrase us in him, he's talking about the church. We are the us in him. Chose us in him, the church, look, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What's he talking about? God from the beginning of time had a church. Your rejection or acceptance of God either puts you in the church or not the church. But God has a plan for the church. The church is to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Well, Brother McGee, not everybody's like that. Well, you have a choice to decide to be a part of the church or not a part of the church. But if you're a part of the church, God has a plan for the church. Hallelujah. I'm not telling you the moment you're born, you're destined for this, you're destined for that. Man has a choice, always had a choice. The will of man was not transgressed in the Garden of Eden. He had the power and the will in himself. But when we align our will with God's will, we become a part of the church and God's got a plan for the church to rapture her. Amen. And I feel the Holy Ghost here. So I said all of that to talk about eternal life. Because eternal, again, I think many times we associate with the idea about longevity, about forever. But eternal in the Greek doesn't have as much to do with duration of life as it does quality of life. Reason here with me for a moment. Like the Apostle Paul, let's reason together. If eternal life was just speaking about duration of time, Those who go to hell also experience eternal life. If it was just about about duration of time, forever, hell, those in hell have eternal life. The Bible describes it in the New Testament. It's where the worm, speaking of man, dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's spoken of as an everlasting fire and the people in it in everlasting torment. If, if you've ever got the idea that hell's not so bad, you'll go there, you'll burn up and it's said and done, you're wrong. You will feel the pain and the agony and the anguish for eternity of the choices you made in this earth. So if we're just talking about duration of time, then those going to hell have eternal life as well. Everybody okay? It's not about just duration of time. It's about the quality of that life. The Bible tells us in verse number three, speaking of this eternal life, he says, and this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. They would know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, which thou hast sent. Listen, to know God is not about just having knowledge of God. It's not just to have intellect about God, be able to tell me Bible verses about God. To know God is to have a personal, intimate relationship with God. And listen, we need not be troubled 
I'm going to allay any feelings. We need not be troubled by the and in verse number three, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We'll get to that here in a moment. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, or let me state it like this, the plan or the path to God. Because we can't even have a relationship with the Lord if it wasn't for Christ bridging the gap in order for us to have that relationship between humanity and divinity. The word and there in the Greek, it's key. It can even mean, it means also even. Meaning this, that when it says that thou might know thee, the only true God, even Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We'll look at that just a little bit more here in just a little bit. Our way to God, our way to God is through the work and the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvary, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Notably seen in 1 Corinthians 15 as the gospel. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 23, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. In other words, there must be acknowledgement of both God and the plan of God, Jesus Christ. To deny one is to deny the other. To accept one is is to accept the other. Amen. The knowledge of God, and this, I know this is kind of treading through some waters tonight, but you're okay. I, 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 you know, I know students right now in high school that's taking physics and they're taking trigonometry and, and so there, and there's people that take algebra. You hear me? I, I've, I've long, I've long went past the idea that you got to dumb things down for teenagers because this is a smarter generation than what it was in my generation. Okay. So that's baloney. Amen. If you could understand derivatives and things like that. Yeah, okay, enough said. The knowledge of God cannot be separated from the knowledge of Jesus Christ because in John 1, the man Christ Jesus, the Bible says, he declared, which is literally, he revealed God to the world. Huh? In other words, humanity does not have a firm knowledge of God without Christ Jesus. No man had ever seen God at any time all throughout the Old Testament. But when Jesus arrives, he's the image of the invisible God. He makes plain and gives knowledge to something they only had a surface knowledge about. So eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, the plan, the expression the, expl- the explanation, yeah. Jesus Christ was the explanation of God in the flesh. He was God personified. Someone say amen. amen. He is God in flesh. If you, if you ever stumbled across this word, you didn't know what it meant. Incarnate, that means enfleshed. God incarnate is God in flesh. All right? Eternal life then is through Jesus Christ. Again, no man comes. The Bible says this, John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but through, he said, me. Jesus Christ said that. He said, no man comes to the Father but through me. Salvation, what does your Acts 4.12 say? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name, huh, given under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. It happens by him. Now, this, is, this was interesting. I, I read a lot, and I was reading a scholar by the name of Keener, and he was stating some things concerning John 17, 3, and that little and there in the verse that make trouble a lot of people, but it don't trouble me. He says that the connection between Jesus and the Father in, in verse 3 is very close. This is a scholar, mind you, much smarter than myself in some regards. It, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that prideful, I'm just saying It is even grammatically possible, he says, to construe the dual object, and this is a word didn't know, I had to look it up. Hendiadis, that the dual object is a hendiadis, identifying Jesus Christ with the only true God. All right. So I looked up this, what is this hendiadis thing? Hendiadis is a figure of speech 
which is the expression, get this, the expression of a single idea by two words connected with an. You hearing me? This is a scholar. He said this very well could be a gr- grammatical hindiatus where there is a single idea that is conveyed by two words connected by an. What are the two words? God and Jesus. But he's saying we're not talking about number one and number two. He said grammatically this could just as equally be one idea, one God, that is conveyed by two words. (laughs) Because Jesus, listen, this is Jesus praying. This is Jesus praying in John 17. And Jesus is addressing the Father. Oh, Brother McGee, don't do that to me. What? The Son, many times when when you talk about the Son or you talk about uh, uh, the Son of God, it's talking about the fleshly nature of Christ Jesus. When it talks about the, 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 the Son of Man, rather flesh, when it talks about the Son of God, it's talking about the spiritual side of Him. And so whenever it says that Jesus is praying to the Father, He's praying to the Spirit, and He's saying that they, the disciples, might know the only true God and just for our purposes, I'm going to put a comma, Jesus Christ. It'd be like me saying, just so that everybody would know, our dear mother, you're not my mother, but our dear mother, Sheila McGee, our dear mother, Sheila McGee, I could have said, so that they would know our dear mother and Sheila McGee. Doesn't make her two individuals. Doesn't make her two persons. I'm just giving a single idea conveyed with two words that's connected by N. Oh, someone say amen. With this, this is very important. Listen to me. This is very important for monotheistic belief. Because this is not just saying that Jesus was God. This is saying, listen to me very clearly, that Jesus was the Father. Listen to me. More plainly, that the Son, you ask anybody on the earth, who is Jesus Christ? They'll say, he's the Son of God. Okay, I agree with that. This is very plain language because Jesus is praying as we've seen along the, the way. He's praying to the Father. He starts in verse 17. Father, the hour has come. Yeah. Right? In verse 5. And now, oh, Father, he's praying to the Father. But he says to, to, eternal life is this. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Note, though, he says it's to know thee. You see verse number three? That they might know thee. Who's he talking to? The Father. That they would know thee, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Or if that's just conveying one idea, that they would know thee, the Father, the only true God, Jesus Christ. In that verse then, we have an equating that the Son is the Father. Now listen, the doctrine that we do not succumb to does not believe that the Father is the Son, the Son is the Father, the Father is the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Ghost is the Father. They believe, absolutely, that the Holy Ghost is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God, but they do not believe those relationships are each other. This, though, that little verse there, isn't just comparing Jesus to God or the Father to God. It's making a comparison of the Father to the Son. He said... Listen, folks, and this for me, and I've had people question me about this before, and we kind of beat around the bush and all this stuff, but this to me then undergirds the importance of knowing who he really is for salvation. You hearing me? He said, because eternal life. You hearing me? He said, life eternal is that they might know thee, the Father, which is the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one who sent, the one that you sent. Very important. You say, Brother McGee, it don't matter. It does. It does. It does matter knowing who he is. Because you don't know who he is, you won't be baptized in his nature, his name. If, if, he, told, if he talked to the disciples and they talked about which, which is the best of these uh, uh, commandments that we have and all that, this is what he said. I think it was in Mark. Yeah, he says, love God. But he starts out with this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord thy God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy mind, with all of thy soul and thy strength 
and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you want to know what it all centers around? It centers around knowing who he is. It all spans from there. That's a reason if you start to deny who he is, you start to deny who he is, you're going to start losing some other doctrines in your life too because that's the core doctrine of everything. It all stems from there. It all flows from there. And if you cut that out, you've cut the root of everything else out from under itself. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. So, verse 4. Jesus says, and again, here it is. Jesus says, I've glorified you in the earth. All right? I finished the work which thou hast gavest me to do. Now, I get him glorifying me in the earth. I get that. The things that he did, the words that he spoke, the actions that he took, the miracles that were wrought. But then he says, I finished, finished, finished. I finished the work that you gave me to do. He's not on the cross. There's no blood flowing from his side or his head. There's no crown of thorns. There's no beating with the nine tails or beat with rods or spat upon. You finished the work? Again, Jesus Christ, dual nature, human side, divine side. As God, Jesus could say, I finished the work because it was a work that was finished from the foundation. It was a work that we've already come to realize, sister, that was from the foundation of the world. As God, I finished the work. As Christ, just a few more hours and I'm with you, boys. As, as, as the man, they're going to lead me through the town. I'm going to bear my cross. But as God, it's finished. As man, he would later say, it's finished from the cross. But as God, he's already saying before he ever went to the cross, it's over. Because in eternity, it was. Someone say amen. Verse 5. So what many, what many people term as, as Jesus' prayer for himself, glorify, glorify thou me. Put more syllables in that word than what's there. <laughs> glorify thou me. It's really a request for God's will to be done as it had been ordained from the very foundations of the world. So what glory, did, what glory did Christ have with God before the world was? I don't know. This is trudging deep for people. And let me tell you why this is so hard for modern day society. Because they have a lens of a creed and a dogma that was created in the 300s that they can't see past. They only see through. But if we would go back to the original lens that's uncontaminated by the hand of men, then we wouldn't have near the confusion that we do when we read our Bibles. If we weren't using some individual's creation and interpretation as our standard to look through. I give you rose-colored glasses and it's probably going to be a rose hint on the stuff you look at. Somebody needs to get the clear lenses back on. Amen. What, what glory did Jesus have with God before the world was? In the beginning again was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That Word was made flesh. Jesus was that logos. He was that will. He was that thought of God from the beginning. That is in part the glory that he shared with God from the very beginning. His birth, again, was the expression or the manifestation of that will that was back before the beginning of the world. And the deity, listen to me, whenever I talk about deity, the godness, all right, maybe sometimes terms throw y'all, deity is like God-likeness, all right? The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is expressed in the fact that he asked to be glorified with the glory that he had with God from before the world was. Why do you say that? Shows forth Jesus Christ, this man's deity. Why why does that push toward his deity? I'll tell you why. Because he is talking about a shared glory. And shared glory then 
points to a divine nature of Christ because you can read in your Bibles, Isaiah, here's just a couple scripture references, 42 and 8 and also 48 and 11. Isaiah says in the Old Testament that God will not give his glory to another. There's been nothing transgressed here because Jesus Christ wasn't another man. Jesus Christ was God manifested in the flesh. Can they have glory from the beginning of time and share it? You better believe it. Because he who had it in the beginning is he who has it in his earthly ministry. It's still God. Or otherwise, listen, nobody was supposed to worship anybody but God. Yeah. We even look in the book of Revelation. Uh, John fell down at several times to an angel and said, get you up. Others said, in Daniel, I'm a man just like you. But whenever different ones came and worshipped and fell down and worshipped Jesus Christ, you know there was never anything said about them worshipping him because they weren't worshipping the man Christ Jesus. They were worshipping the God to wit was in Christ. No foul on any play because Jesus is who he said he was. He was God. Man, oh, help us. Someone say, help us, Lord. So Jesus glorified God in the earth. Yes, he did miracles, but the miracles he said, not my works, God works. That glorifies God then. The words he spoke, not my words, the words of the Lord. That glorifies then God, right? All of that. Look at verse number six. It tells us, I have manifested thy name unto the men. I've manifested thy name unto the men. The New Living Translation says it like this, just the first phrase. He says, I have revealed you. The Amplified Classic Version says, I have manifested your name. I have revealed your very self, your real self. Again, you'll hear me say this a gazillion, zillion times before I die. Name through Scripture doesn't just represent name. It represents what? Anybody learned anything ever since the years I've been here? It represents nature. It represents character. Jesus then manifest his name, or if you will, his nature unto the men. The Bible speaks in Hebrews concerning Christ Jesus that he was the express image, which literally interpreted as the exact copy of the invisible God. Jesus declared again in John 1, 18, Jesus declared or revealed to humanity the God that no man had seen. Jesus satisfied this so completely that he could say, this is in your Bibles, John 12, 45, Jesus could say, he who sees me has seen him that sent. Why? How? Because he manifested him to men. He could say that he that has seen me has seen the? Why? Because he manifested his name, or if you will, his nature unto men. The Bible says, Psalms 9 and verse number 10, the psalmist, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. They that know thy name. Now listen. If you're just going to pull a name out of the clouds that I have no association with, I'm going to be very low and lacking trust anywhere. Because the mentioning of the name must have some type of association for me because when I think of the name, I'm either going to think of good character and this, this, this. Psalmist says, whenever you speak your name, he said, I put my trust in you. He's not just talking about calling out letters that make up words of somebody's proper name. He said, whenever they say your name, I know your name is your nature. And that tells me about your goodness and it tells me about your grace. And he says, as a result of knowing your name, your nature, he said, then I can put my trust. 
I can put my trust in that. So for the Lord, for Christ Jesus, to know his name is to know him, is to know his nature. A name alone, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing to trust in unless there is a nature that is associated with the name. And we trust in him, amen, because we know his name and the nature that that represents. We know what God is like and we trust in him and Jesus made that clear because he manifested him to his disciples. Someone say amen. amen. We'll wrap it up. I'm telling you, I'll get it in before an hour. The Bible says, as he continues on, in verse six, he's saying, you gave me, you gave me a grouping of people. He's referring to the disciples. You gave me them they were yours, but you gave them to me, and these, these have kept thy word. They were yours. Number one, let's get this. Everybody's is the Lord's first and foremost because of creation. God even said Psalms 24 and 1. The earth is the, and the, and the world, and they, Amen. And that was great. Just in the last chapter, you'll remember we finished up, they claimed to know God, <clears throat> that he came from God, that Christ came from God. And Christ understands that they're a little iffy in everything that they're professing. But he doesn't discard that they don't have some element or degree of belief, which they did. He knows they believed what he really knows is that they don't fully understand everything they believe yet. And let me say this, that's okay. They believed, but they didn't fully understand everything they believed yet. And Christ is like, that's okay. Because the amazing thing is this, you don't have to understand to believe. You don't have to... That's what we're going to do right now. You don't, have to, you don't have to believe. You don't have to understand to believe. I go back here tonight. Don't worry about me. Those online, we're all here. I go back here tonight. I believe that when I hit these lights, these switches, it's going to go dark in here. Now, I have a very surface understanding how that takes place. But to get real scientific about the process that happens the moment you flip the switch and to talk about current and ohms and resistance and all of that, I have the slightest idea, Sister Jennifer. But that doesn't remove the fact that I believe that when I did it, it happened. Don't understand all the ins and outs of it. Don't maybe even have the ability to explain it to that intense degree. Nonetheless, I believe. And it works. It operates. I flip the switch by faith. And I'm not disappointed with the result. I don't understand all the ohms and everything else involved but I got the result. So listen, not understanding initially what you believe takes a measure of faith. You don't know all the ins and outs or ups and downs, but you have a measure of faith. You believe. And what you do then is you act upon the belief. Because that's what faith is. That's what James told us. Faith without works is. So is there even, I mean, dead faith is no better than no faith at all, right? I mean, dead faith is dead. I'd rather have a living faith with not total understanding than dead faith with all the understanding. So he said, that's the reason why we start in our Christian journey and walk with the Lord for eternal life begins with faith. Because if you have faith, you're going to act out and you're going to obey. That obedience isn't your works. That obedience is a response to your belief. Yeah. 
that obedience is a response to your faith. You're going to start following some paths and doing some things that you might not understand all the ins and outs about or couldn't write a dissertation and research paper about, but you believe. And you know what? It'll work. I've seen several people be baptized in Jesus' name. I've told them it was for the remission of their sins, all this stuff, and that they needed repented before and made sure they did before they done it. But they really didn't understand the gravity of what was taking place. But they believed that if that man puts me down in water in the name and the nature of Christ Jesus, my sins are going to be gone. I've seen those same people go to altar of prayer and through an act of surrender begin to praise and worship God and they begin to speak in other tongues as the New Testament church did as the Spirit gave the utterance. They couldn't tell you how that operated, how that happened, but they could tell you this, it works. Life eternal is knowing God in the plan or the path, Christ Jesus, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand with me, please. Jesus said in verse 8, he said, Lord, he said, I gave them words that were given to me, and they received them. And they even obeyed them based upon what? Pure, genuine faith. Not necessarily pure, genuine, complete understanding. Hebrews 4.2 says this, For unto us was the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection, preached as well as unto them. But the word preached, the gospel, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Because to hear it is one thing, Bishop. But it's another thing to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, which will spawn obedience to what I have heard. That brings about change. That brings about results. The Passion Translation says, concerning verse number 8, latter portion, they have fully believed that you sent me to represent you. Listen, that belief for the disciples, they had a certain element and a mountain degree, but that belief skyrocketed after Calvary. Skyrocketed after Calvary because the mind of their understanding was now opened about several things that they didn't understand before. These same guys, these same guys who fled in the garden now are willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of the disciples do die martyrs' death for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all simply boils down to this, because you will not die for what you do not believe in. Just the unfolding of eternal life. Can we bow our heads all across this place? I still feel an urging of the Spirit of the Lord in this place. It is just meandering here tonight. And I'm asking that if God has been pricking you in your heart this evening, that you would respond by faith. Amen. Faith that has been conjured by the word and if you'll take your faith and mix it with that word it will be profitable for you hallelujah he had a plan for you sir he had a plan for you ma'am all of us before the very foundation of the world Christ amen was that plan and God never scratched his head trying to figure out what he was going to do or how he was going to settle this dilemma of sin, amen, against himself. No, he knew, amen, before the first star was placed in the sky, he knew before light first shone upon the earth, amen, that the lamb was being slain at the foundation of the very world and it would be shown forth in time, amen, on Calvary's hill outside of the city gates of Jerusalem and that would be the redemption of mankind. From the very beginning to the very end, it is a story of redemption. From the very beginning to the very end, it is a story of love. From the very beginning to the very end, it is an unfolding of eternal life for you and I. If we 
will buy in, if we will accept, if we will allow that purpose and that plan to be worked out in our life. Folks, we need eternal life tonight in the sense that we need that quality of life, not just longevity. We need that quality of life, of knowing God and the plan that he has provided for us, amen, through his death, burial, and resurrection for salvation, for atonement, for cleansing us, for remitting our sins, for taking off the old man and putting on the new man and walking in the power and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Can we extend our hands upward tonight? Can us as a congregation begin to sing? Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.